So I was, I was, I, I was just talking about this, but um, you know, there's this video that you have to watch. It's a training to go to um, Voice of Refugee. It's like a couple hour thing where they go through um, kind of some of the differences. Uh, I mean, there's some biblical stuff. They'll talk about uh, what the Bible has to say about refugees and and how we should think about people who are in these circumstances and how we're called to serve and to love. And there was uh, some cultural things. So they will talk about the difference between Eastern and Western culture, or particularly maybe Middle Eastern culture, um, or an honor and shame-based culture versus a Western culture, which is typically uh, more of a guilt-based culture. Not guilt in the sense of, like, I feel guilty, but guilt in the sense of, like, legal guilt. That's the way... That in the West, for example, in America, we tend to think. And so they, they pointed out some differences. And it's very interesting for many of us, I think, because we are, you know, we, we are like, we have immigrant parents, you know, from the East. And so, uh, for example, the West tends to value equality. And the East tends to value hierarchy. Right, so you and you guys know if you're, if you have like Asian parents, right? There's this sense of, like, respect your elders. There is a hierarchy that is established, even in church, right? In the Korean church, oftentimes it's like there is this age-based kind of hierarchy, and when the West looks at that hierarchy, it seems oppressive. We tend to think of that as oppressive, and when the East looks at the West's notion of equality, it seems disrespectful. And it's very interesting being of both cultures because there are times where I think that hierarchical kind of notion is so oppressive, right? Especially as a younger person, I used to think that. And then as I get older, I think this young person's notion of equality is so disrespectful. And it's, it's very interesting to go through that. Uh, another one was the West tends to be task task-focused, and the East tends to be event-focused. So, for example, if you've ever heard of the term Korean time, right? In the West, you tend to want to start things on time because you care about the task. And in the East, you tend to want to start things when people get there because you are more focused on the event. Now, when the East looks at that task-focused attitude, it seems unkind. And when the West looks at the event-focused attitude, it seems inconsiderate because, you know, people don't show up on time. Um, One more, the West tends to value honesty and the East tends to value harmony. When the West looks at the East's notion of harmony, it seems dishonest to kind of preserve relationships. And you might even, actually, I think there's a movie out right now Oh, I, I can't think of it. But, you know, in, the, in, in Eastern culture, sometimes there are these, like, things that are hidden from people. And it can be, like, family secrets or something. And oftentimes those things are hidden for a long time to preserve some kind of harmony or relationship or honor. Whereas in the West, we would think, oh, that's just lying. And that's bad. So you kind of see that there are these differences What's very interesting for us in in our time is that we live, Western culture tends to be very individualistic, whereas Eastern culture tends to be communal, relational. You can see that from these differences. 
also, we're part of the millennial generation, most of us, which also tends to be very individualistic, whereas previous generations have been more communal. So we live in a very individualistic culture, and we are part of a very individualistic generation. So we have a heightened sense of individualism where most of our lives revolve around us fulfilling some inner personal desire. And we don't think much about community around us. Now, I bring this up. I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. I think it makes certain ideas easier to grasp and certain ideas more difficult to grasp. Now, today we're going to talk about the idea of unity, though. And that our generation and culture makes it really hard for us to grasp the idea of unity, to adopt it or to even have the right concept of it, particularly as the Bible presents it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The question is, what makes the church powerful? You know, we're doing this Dear God series. We're going to Next week is going to be the last one, um, and we're going to go through this passage the next two weeks in Ephesians. But I'll answer the question is, the answer to the question is the unity, <laughs> what makes the church powerful. But we'll talk about um, how can we guard that unity that we have in Christ, and why is it so important? Why is it something that makes the church powerful? That's what we'll talk about today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's um, open them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1 through, we'll read 1 through 6, um, and then we'll kind of break it up. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's word, and it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How can we guard the unity that we have in Christ? Now, I I put it that way because what the Bible tells us is that we already, if you're a believer, you already have a unity with other believers, right? That comes from Jesus, right? You know, we, like, if you guys remember when we were talking about baptism, if you go down into the water, you come up out of the water, there is already this kind of automatic, and of course, it also you know, it predates even the moment of your baptism. It's, it's not just about that actual act, but when you receive Christ, that moment, like when you enter into a relationship with Christ, when you put your faith in Christ for salvation, you are automatically brought into a unity with the people of God. So like the universal church, right? Everybody who knows Jesus, you also are automatically spiritually linked to all those people. That's based on Jesus. That's not based on like where you go to church. It's not based on your, you know, theological particulars. It's just there is this spiritual kind of bond and connection that happens that God creates 
in us. So what he says here is, be eager to maintain that unity. Right? To, and maintain, I think, is maybe not the best, maybe not the best translation, because it kind of makes it seem like maintenance, like unity, maintenance. Um, the way that NIV puts it is actually make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. So I'm going to synthesize this. Obviously, there are kind of more details. This is humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love. But what I would say is the way that we guard our unity in the gospel is by being committed Right? By being committed to one another, by being committed to love one another in Christ. Now, that idea, like make every effort, it's something I used to think differently about. I think when I was younger, and I've been churched pretty much my whole life, so when I was in college and like post-college, I used to think differently because I would think, no, you know, you just kind of become unified automatically with, with people if you're Christian, right? Like, like you don't have to guard it. You don't have to maintain it. You don't have to keep it. Just kind of do Christian stuff. And if you just keep doing Christian stuff, you'll, it'll just kind of happen. You don't have to think about it. Now, obviously, that was different because I was younger. I was mostly in a pretty homogeneous environment. Everybody's like the same. You think the same. You don't have a lot of differences of opinion. You're not in different life stages. Everybody's just all, you know, you have the same free time. Nobody has a job. Nobody has money, right? So you all just kind of hang out all the time and you tend to think you developed this idea, or at least I did. I developed this idea that that's what unity is. It's like when you just hang out all the time, you're friends all the time, you don't have real issues, you know, you're all about the same. You just think the same about everything, and that's unity. Now, I've learned by being a Christian and experiencing, sadly, many of you have also experienced but this, but, like, churches split up. You know, people have fights. It seems like there is a lot more of a force that is automatically trying to pull the church apart than there is one that is automatically trying to bring it together, right? And when churches split, like we were, you know, some of you here, like we went to the same church, right? There was part of a church that split up and then split up again. And one of the churches that split up from that church also split up again into another church. That, by the way, that's not multiplication. (laughs) That's, that's division, right? That's not the way that the church is supposed to grow. So, Unity, like most things in Christian life, is not automatic. You know, spiritual growth isn't automatic. Evangelism isn't automatic. Fellowship's not automatic. We want things to be automatic and organic. And in my younger days, even in ministry, I would always think that way. Like, ah, things will just kind of happen if you just let God do stuff. But um, that's not actually the way that the Bible presents unity. Uh, it's difficult. Paul, in fact, assumes that it will be difficult. Look at his language, right? Because you, you're going to have to exercise humility because you're not going to want to exercise humility. Like, the reason he has to say that is because you're going to want to be arrogant. You're going to want to make much of yourself, not much of others. You're going to want to, you're going to tend to think you're right and other people are wrong. You're going to tend to want to be elevated rather than to elevate other people. That is our natural tendency. So he says, be humble. He says, be gentle because you're going to want to be harsh and mean and belligerent. You're going to want to 
argue and win arguments when you have arguments and you're going to want to be right and shut people down and shut people up. And that's not what we're supposed to do. That's not what maintains unity. That's not what protects, what guards the unity that we have in Christ. It's rather gentleness. And the idea of gentleness, it's not so much like, oh, like you're so, you know, like, like, like that kind of gentleness, like, like you're petting people as you're rebuking them. It's like, that's not the idea. It's, it's uh, self-control, right? It's meekness, which is power under control. That's the way that it's defined which Jesus, of course, exercised. And then he says, be patient. Be patient. Exercise patience because your patience will be tested. And because change generally is slow because you're going to want to be impatient and you're going to want to push people into things and you're going to want to push the church into things and you're going to want to have people go at your pace and you're not going to want to go at the pace of others. But he says, be patient. And then he says, bear with one another in love. Uh, because people are going to need bearing with. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, Unity is not simple or easy. Like anything in discipleship, it's by God's grace. And at the same time, it's hard work. We have to fight for it. We have to fight to protect it, to guard it. Now, because we live in a very individualistic generation and a very individualistic culture, this notion of commitment to love, to guard, to protect this unity, um, it's not very popular today. Right? Even in, Even church culture has dramatically shifted, at least here, you know, in Southern California, um, I, so I, I've been in church my whole life from as early as I can remember to the age of 18. Okay, t- till I was 18 years old, right? Till, uh, till I graduated high school. Early as I can remember, I don't know, what is that, like four or five or whatever? Like from that age to 18, literally, I missed church twice in my whole life. One time I had the chicken pox, so I stayed home. I just didn't remember it in elementary school. And one time I had this other weird, crazy rash that just suddenly overtook my body, which was really weird. I was at church, and it happened, and then I went home. Those are the only two times, literally, that I missed church. Meaning, and, and by the way, when I had chicken pox, my parents left me at home, but they went to church. Everybody else went to church. So that means my parents didn't miss church ever from the time as early as I can remember until I was like 18. And from the time I was 18 till the time I graduated college, I missed church once. I remember I went to New York (laughs) on vacation one time. But now, I mean, that, that, that culture is just gone, right? That notion is gone. Uh, we don't really think about the idea of going to church every week. We were, <laughs> we were kind of talking about this in our leaders' meeting this morning. But um, it's kind of like an outdated idea. And I think for many of us, we even think like, like if you've gone to church 51 
Sundays, <laughs> out of the 52 Sundays of the year, that last Sunday, you'll probably be like, I got to just, I got to miss church once at least though, right? <laughs> like I can't, I can't go 52 times. Like that's weird. You know, I got to, I got to have vacation from church, you know? Um, I mean, I have to have vacation from church because church is my job, literally. <laughs> but I think it's kind of a weird notion. Um, so yesterday, um, my sister had a, had a birthday party for her, her daughter, my niece. And um, my parents, they're going to stop by. You know, they're going to go there, right? They live close to my, my sister. And um, my mom, if you don't know my mom, she loves to cook. Right? She loves to cook more than anything. And she's a, she's a great cook. She's cooked, you know, it's been her job for, like, most of her life. And whenever anything is happening, she, like, cooks food. Like, literally, when Boomy and I were getting married, we had 450 people at our wedding. She's like, do you want me to cook the food? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? Like, no. She's like, I'll at least, like, bring egg rolls. Or like, she's thinking, like, I'll at least bring something. I'm like, oh, my. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about, right? Like, that's insane. But that's how my mom is. So anytime anything is happening... You know, you know what's funny is at our launch service, when this church, we had our launch service, my mom said she would cook the food. And I was like, no, like, that's weird. Don't do that. So she's cooking for my sister's birthday. You know, so my sister has a birthday party, and she, she, got, she obviously bought all this food. But my mom had to cook something. So she cooks pasta, and she cooks, you know, watermelon. She puts it in the back of her car. You know, my parents are going there. They were late. They're, they're in a rush. So they, they're going there, right? And... Uh, my dad's kind of rushing. He, you know, he makes a left, and then, you know, a car is coming like really fast, and so my dad has to kind of like swerve, and then bam, like they had this huge car accident. Like this happened yesterday, and thankfully, like my parents are okay. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like there was no catastrophic injury, and my dad actually kind of swerved at the last minute. So that it wasn't, so because my my mom like it hit the passenger side, my mom would have just been like really it would have been over, and so but she's like injured, okay, and she's like got all these bruises and stuff. My dad can like not get out of the car, you know, because he's he's his back hurts and he can't move his like legs and stuff, and so they pull him out. You know, the paramedics come, they pull him out. They call my sister. They say they've gone to an accident. My sister comes. She's talking to my, my mom, and my mom's getting in the car, right? But she's getting in the paramedics. They're, they're loading her into the paramedics, right? My dad, he doesn't even know what's going on. He's totally disoriented. And my mom says, she grabs my sister's arm, and she says, check on the pasta. <laughs> she says, like, how's the pasta, right? And so my, sis- my sister goes, and she checks and obviously, it's everywhere, right? It's a car accident, so it's, like, everywhere. And then she goes back to my mom, and she's like, she's already thinking, like, Mom, you're ridiculous, right? She goes back to my mom, and she's like, it's everywhere, right? And my mom says, try to salvage it. Like, like try to scoop up, like, what you can. And, like, that's, that's my mom. That, that's, that's my mom. Like, she's... An incredible servant, like she'll probably be cooking at church in the kitchen until she just dies. Like literally, I think that's what's going to happen to her. You know, she serves too much. She's incredibly Asian. 
And, uh, you know, she holds very closely to this honor-shame culture. Sometimes she's indirect and she's passive-aggressive. Um, and I have had, like, there are, you know, my mom says that. <laughs> you know, my sister's telling me this story on the phone. And I'm just like, that's hilarious. That's my mom, right? And um, there was a time, though, where I did not understand that about my mom. And I really wanted to change her. You know, like, I wanted to change her so badly. And probably from when I was in high school all the way until, like, three years ago. You know, like, I tried so hard. I would tell her stuff. And I'm a pastor, right? So, and my parents are Christian. And so I'm very equipped, you know, to battle them when it's time. And I'll pull out verses, and we'll talk about stuff, and we'll debate kind of these theological issues. And oftentimes, I'll be honest, my parents impress me. I'm like, oh, wow, you actually know more than I thought you did, right? And, and we'll go back and forth about some of these issues. And about, it was like about three years ago, I think. I think maybe it was four years ago. It's probably when, I, when we had kids that I started kind of giving that up. Because um, there were two things about my parents that I had to accept. Okay. One was particularly my mom. You know, I would, have, I would have probably yelled at my mom if she said that to me several years ago, what she said to my sister. I would have been like, what is your problem? Like, you just, like, almost died. Like, why are you thinking about that? Um, but I didn't. I laughed. I laughed when she said it this time. And it, I think it's because of these two things. One, uh, I recognize now my expectations of her, of her, and for her are flawed. So what I want her to be and what I want her to become, they're flawed because I'm flawed, because I'm a flawed, biased human being with a ton of baggage, just like all of you. And so I see that with, with my mom, right? We all carry that baggage, by the way, for one another, too. So that was the first thing I had to recognize. My expectations of her and for her are flawed. And here's the second thing I had to recognize. My job isn't to change her. It's to love her. Right now, you might ask, oh, so you're, are you saying that we shouldn't try to change people or that people don't change? I'm not saying people don't change. People certainly change. Right? And my job as a pastor is to try to help you to change but really what it, my, my job for you as your pastor is to speak the truth in love to you as accurately as I can, as I see it in Scripture, so that God can help you to change. But I can't change you. You can't change you. You can't change anyone. We can act in love, but we can't force any person, including our parents, or our children, or our spouses, or our closest friends, or our worst enemies. We can't change them. God can change them. Now, that's a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. Because if your intent is to love people, not not unconditionally affirm, right? So that doesn't mean you say everything in their life is okay and you agree with it. Like you can still disagree with them, right? 
But if you unconditionally love them, they will change for the better, and they will likely appreciate the role that you played in that change. But if your intent is to change people rather than to love people, they will more than likely change for the worse as a result of your interactions, and they will resent you for the role that you played in that change. The Bible calls us to bear with one another in love. Like that, like, obviously I love my mom because she's my mom. But there is something more incredible that happens when we are able to love one another based on a different foundation that we all have together in Christ. This gets into the idea, this second idea of why unity is important. Why is unity important? And I'll, I'll just answer that right now. Unity in the gospel, it's important because it's essential to demonstrating the powerful glory of God. Unity. Like the unity that we have in the gospel is essential to demonstrating the powerful glory of God. Here he speaks, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all this is. So they have one body, one spirit, one hope. And then one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then one God, God the Father, who is over all, through all, in all. And if you see, the Trinity is also present here. One Spirit, one Lord Jesus, one God and Father of all. And it points back to the Trinity, giving also three qualities of each person of the Trinity. And showing, like pointing back to God and saying, that's the foundation of our unity. And when we are founded on that unity, we also demonstrate God, the power of God, the glory of God. You know, going back here, we kind of skipped over this, but he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. He goes all the way back, and he's talked about in the other parts of Ephesians, we're just picking it up in chapter 4. If you go back to the first three chapters, he says, you know, he, he talks about the amazing love and the grace of God. He talks about what you've been called to, the incredible grace of God, the love of Christ, our redemption, our salvation, our adoption, in light of the fact that we're all children of God, how amazing that is, in light of the fact that the gospel is the core to our individual identity. He goes through all of this. Paul goes through all this in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of that, corporately, you're called to some things. And one of those things, importantly, is this unity. So it's like really important, right? He talked, you know, Paul talks about this in other passages as well. This is Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, there's that kind of terminology there. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything in, uh, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. 
right? He says, you're striving together with like one mind and one spirit. This is in uh, Philippians 2, right? A little bit later, just like a couple verses down, he says, so if there is any encouragement, I whiffed on turning this page. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He points to that unity again. And then he gives the practical. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's kind of the... Same idea, the same themes you see there where Paul is pointing to unity and he's saying, look, you have to fight for this. For the church to grow in unity, you must be committed to guarding and growing the gospel. You must be committed to the guarding and the growing of our corporate gospel identity in church. This is why we gather every Sunday. This is why we have membership. This is why we do life groups. It's why we have set times of corporate prayer and to study the word. It's not just... Because, look, what Western consumerism will tell you is, I'll go if it benefits me. Christianity doesn't work like that, right? In fact, the people that come to Jesus to evaluate Jesus and see what can I get from you, Jesus, right? Who come to him for bread, they say like, oh, wow, he did this miracle where he reproduced all this bread. If I follow Jesus, maybe I'll get bread. Do you know what he says to those people? He says, get out of here. Stop following me. Because you don't get it. You don't get what I'm offering you. I'm offering you far more than bread. But if you want to follow me, if you want to step into your faith and follow me, you do it on my terms. This is John 17, 20 to 21, right? I quote this often, but it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is what we just sang, right? I told Jerome to sing this song, and he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what is this ancient song that you have pulled out from some ancient scroll? No, you know what's funny about that is that, like, whenever, and for some reason, Jerome always seems to lead praise when it's, like, a unity or a community <laughs> message, but we can never find songs. There's no songs. Do you know why? Because our generation doesn't care about unity. We're all about the personal, intimate worship experience. There used to be songs about unity. I remember when I was growing up in you, I know a ton of songs from like the 90s, right, about unity. None anymore. We don't sing about that. It's not important to us. And then you wonder why the church has such a weak witness in the world when we are constantly fighting with one another when the idea of church is not about committing to a body, it's about finding one that fits your preferences. How is that any different from what the world offers? This is what the Bible says. When we're unified, 
when we're one in Christ. So not one in our ethnicity, you know, not one in our hobbies, not one in any other way in our age or our life stage or just our politics or any of these other things. When we're one in Christ, like, like there is oneness in the Godhead, in the Trinity, then the world sees, then the world believes that the world may know you have sent your son. So it is on the gospel that our unity is built, and it is through our unity that the gospel is put on display. And that's a powerful picture. Sometimes I think like, um, I think like this is the picture of unity uh, that, that the world paints. And, you know, I used to always look for like, I, I do like Google image searches like all the time, right? Because I'm always looking for stuff. If I have to do some kind of like presentation or if I'm doing some kind of like training or something, you know, I'm always like looking for, the, or like Bible studies, even, you know, I'll look for stuff. Or sometimes I just go on Google search and I'll type in a word like unity, because I want inspiration, right? For example, like for a sermon. And, you know, I look and I, I see like a picture and you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool, right? It's like they seem to be different ages. It's very diverse, right? Um, they're holding hands tightly, right? Like this is, this is cool. This is unity. You know, I, but I get, this, I, I get this sense that the world's idea of unity is basically like a never-ending honeymoon phase, Right? You guys know the phrase honeymoon phase, right? Well, it, repl- it, it, it refers specifically to like when you get married, and then you go on your honeymoon. You know, I went to Hawaii for my honeymoon. And you're just like, it's great. Right? The idea of you, you go right after you get married, you know, it's, everything's fun and easy. You pretty much agree about everything, even though, you know, I, Boomi and I fought also on our honeymoon. But, you know, you finish, you're like, you finish one another's you know, whatever, sandwiches, sentences, everything, right? Like you're just, you're just one, right? And it's like unity, yeah, awesome, unity, right? And then when you get over the honeymoon, then it's like, okay, now it's time to start work, like the work of marriage. But what people want is the honeymoon phase. But you know, the honeymoon, honeymoon phase applies to, if you're like, oh, I'm not, honeymoon phase applies to anything, right? Even like your relationship with your phone, Right? You go through a honeymoon phase, the beginning, when you get it, and you're like, oh, the screen's so much bigger, it's so much faster, you know, whatever, right? I've had like 10 smartphones in my life. I've gone through a honeymoon phase with each one of them, right? Oh, new UI, new camera, cool. Like, look at what it does. Can do this. I can twist it and turn the camera on. I can like do chop it and, you know, my flashlight comes, like whatever, right? All of a sudden, you're, there's all these cool things, right? Your car, your laptop, your home, your job, your shows, right? You go through a honeymoon phase at the beginning, It's the phase during which you are not yet actively aware of all the negatives. Even like shows, you go through that, right? For those of you who watch like Game of Thrones, I heard it didn't end great, right? But at the beginning, you thought it was amazing, right? And somewhere around season four or five, you start slowing down like, "Ah, it's not the same. You know, it's not as amazing, but I'm still committed, so I'm still watching it. And what we want is that perpetual honeymoon phase. But that's not the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. It's not, that's not a powerful unity. That's the same one that the world offers, and it's like we know it's false. 
To me, this is a much better picture of unity. Now, sorry if you're grossed out, but what that actually is is a bunch of fire ants floating on water. And this, this happened in the hurricanes during hurricane season. So ants, right, would be displaced. They have nowhere to go. They're on the water, and they cannot swim on their own. So what they did was they bound to each other so tightly that they created these, like, islands floating in the water. See, because that's, that's a more accurate picture of the challenge that we face in the world. There are tons of things coming at us that want to destroy our unity, not the least of them, Satan and his minions, right? Coming in and wanting to create all kinds of havoc. The kind of unity that Paul is talking about is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of discomfort or the absence of sacrifice or hard work, or maybe the, a work that is easy or a sacrifice that is easy. It's instead a commonality that is so essential to who we are that we will willingly endure conflict or discomfort to protect it. Guarding this unity must be so important that it motivates us to sacrifice to work hard, even when we don't want to, and even when it's not easy. And when we do that, right, my mom's crazy and I love her because she's my mom, but when you love the person sitting next to you, even though they're not your mom, and in fact, uh, you know, several years ago, you didn't even know them. But the bond that holds you together is not a lifetime of history. It is Christ. It is the gospel. It is the fact that you are both broken sinners and you've been forgiven by the atoning work of Christ. And in that, you find the core of who you are. And so you say, anybody who's been through that with me, I can go through with them anything. I am committed to them. I'm going to endure in my love for them. Like when we're able to do that, and, and make no mistake, church, like, we do that. We have done that. In fact, a lot of times when members have come and they've given their testimonies, like new members have come, that's the first thing they say. It's like, ah, I saw people that were like, that cared about each other. Weirdly. It is kind of weird, right? That's a powerful witness. That unity. It's, in fact, our most powerful witness. We must guard it. We must protect it. Remember that, in fact, that is what Christ has done for us. He embraced the discomfort of unwavering commitment to us. He came in humility and gentleness and meekness and self-control. As a baby incarnated, as a man, he went to the cross bearing the shame. He was patient in waiting for us to come to repentance, and he loved us so much, so self-sacrificially. He endured in that all the way to death so that we would be capable of change, so that we can be sanctified and glorified in him. Let's lean into that together. Let's pray together.
Father God, we thank you so much for your love. God, I know that it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to diminish. Um, In fact, it's easy for us to want to walk away from even at times. Uh, But I pray that you would remind us of the gift of your love here today and that you would remind us of the gift of this body that gathers the church. Thank you, God, that we don't have to create unity. You do that. You have done that. Thank you that all of us, though our stories are different, there is a sense in which they're all the same. We've all fallen short of you and we felt it, we experienced it, we acknowledged it, God, and you were kind enough, gentle enough, loving enough to free us from it, God, to redeem us from it, to call us to something else, to something new, to you to bring us all together. And we pray, God, help us to have the resolve to fight for that. Thank you, God, even that we can do that, that we have opportunity to do that. And we pray that you would help us to make the most of it every single week, every single day. God, thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.